Welcome to Beyond Carbon, the podcast where we find out how investors are thinking about climate change, sustainability, ESG, and a whole range of related issues beyond carbon. On this episode of Beyond Carbon, George and I talk methane with Mark Chris, the CEO of Geo Financial Analytics. Now, when people talk about the causes of climate change, they talk mostly about the need to reduce carbon emissions. But it's not simply carbon dioxide emissions that we have to reduce. Methane is another greenhouse gas, and its impact on global warming is between 40 and 80 times greater than CO2, depending on the time frame over which you're measuring. And according to the International Energy Agency, the concentration of methane in the atmosphere today is around two and a half times greater than it was during pre-industrial times. Now, one of the causes of the increase in methane comes from leaks that occur during the fossil fuel production process. And these leaks have been a significant focus of regulators, as well as the fossil fuel producers themselves. But the way that methane emissions are currently reported leaves a lot to be desired. And so this is where Mark and his team at GeoFinancial have stepped in. GeoFinancial is a company that's using satellite imagery to measure methane emissions and attribute those emissions to specific fossil fuel producers. So in essence, Mark and his team are providing a more accurate measure of what companies are actually doing and maybe not doing to prevent methane leakage. And in, in our discussion, we cover how investors can use this data to make more informed decisions regarding, say, engagement with fossil fuel companies with the hopes of changing behavior, not just highlighting, say, bad actors from a reporting standpoint, but identifying with greater accuracy the source of leaks so that companies themselves can remediate the problem. So we hope you enjoy this discussion with Mark about the intersection of climate science, technology, and the capital markets. Hi, Mark. How you doing? Just great. Pleased to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to meet you and uh, looking forward to hearing more about your work. Yeah. Excited to have this conversation today, Mark. So really appreciate you taking the time. You know, you and I have gotten to know each other a little bit over the last year, and maybe before we jump into uh, the topic of the day, which I think is going to be centered around methane, maybe you could give our listeners a little bit of information about sort of the track of your professional career. Well, it's been a bit of a long and circuitous path. I actually started out uh, as a tech entrepreneur. My first company was founded as a spinoff out of Stanford Research Institute in Silicon Valley. And this was a financial analytics firm targeted at uh, fixed income and foreign exchange traders. And then several years later, my partner with that company uh, came back to me. This was now in the early 90s. And he said, there's this Internet thing. We should really get do something in the Internet space. And we ended up raising some some private equity money from Welsh Carson Anderson in, in New York and started one of the very first Internet companies, which became global internet, grandly. And following that experience, I realized that I needed to do a better job managing my personal wealth. And about that time, I had attended the executive program in finance at Stanford. And one of the lecturers there was Bill Sharp. And I got very inspired by his talk on investing and beginning to learn about uh, modern portfolio theory. And those two things led together to a creation of my third company, which was and is a, a wealth management firm. So um, that's how I got started in the in the financial world. About 2009, I, I was becoming 
increasingly concerned about environmental issues. And I ended up attending a lecture by a guy named Dan Miller, who was a deputy of Al Gore's on, the, on his climate project. He, like many other people, had been deputized to be an evangelist for the Inconvenient Truth pitch. And I attended one of his sessions, which was called A Really Inconvenient Truth. Why climate change is much worse than you've been told and what we must do now. And one of the main themes of that talk was that the climate scientists, this was 2009, were much more concerned about what was happening than had been generally reported or than their scientific findings showed because they're just inherently cautious about how they represented the findings. And Dan Miller made the point that the IPC studies represented a best case not a most likely case. And so as I pondered that, I thought, well, if the climate scientists are concerned, I should probably be more concerned uh, than I had been. That led to the creation of a venture with my two grown sons. And we started a, a venture with the idea of capturing the expert opinion of climate scientists on questions that were of particular relevance to the financial markets. We called this Vision Prize. So for three years, we ran these structured surveys. We ended up having 350 climate scientists participating. And we asked them a series of questions that were structured as multiple choice questions with the idea of eliciting both their beliefs about what might happen and what they thought their peers would think. The first one was we, we asked them, if you were a scientific advisor to a $200 billion venture capital fund whose primary concern and interest was to avert catastrophic climate change, where would you put your money? The overwhelming answer was shut down coal-fired power plants. Mm. That was the number one problem. It was 64% said that uh, compared to all these other choices. And we all knew that you know coal-fired power plants were a problem, but we were astonished at the consensus. About the same time, this was 2014, we were working closely with dimensional fund advisors. And they had asked me to join their Sustainability Advisory Council to help them structure their sustainability funds in a more proactive way. And we came to them and, and really in our own work and said, well, if the climate scientists think we should be shutting down coal-fired power plants, how do you implement that as an investment strategy? Yeah. There was no screen or identification of the companies who are actively owners of, of coal-fired power plants. And that was the genesis of our Macro Climate 50 list. So we compiled the list of the top public owners of, of coal-fired power plants as an exclusionary list and, and implemented that in our strategy as did DFA uh, with their mutual funds. And so that was the beginning of the kind of the convergence, and at least in my own career, of combining the, the climate risk and concerns and interests into, into an investment strategy. Yeah. About the same time, I was also asked to become chair of the external advisory board of one of the top climate science research centers in the U.S. Uh, that's the Institute on the Environment at the University of Minnesota. And that put me in position to work directly with climate scientists, which led to our work with the satellites and, uh, and the methane and uh, was really a collaboration growing out of that interaction. But there was one other finding on Vision Prize that was relevant, and that is we asked them if natural gas was going to serve as a, a successful bridge fuel. We asked this question in 2015. And the surprising answer was that a majority of the experts, 68%, thought that even under the most favorable assumptions, that, that is that there would be low methane leakage rate, they didn't think that natural gas would have 
much of an impact on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. And that was our first, at least for me personally, introduction to the whole issue of methane. So that was under favorable assumptions that natural gas would, wouldn't be likely to have a good impact. And then we started asking the question, well, what if the methane emissions are worse than what the climate scientists uh, were saying? Yeah. You know, that's so, it's so interesting that you talked about the science being foundational and, and studying the science and learning about the science and that being sort of a foundation for asking yourself, how is this going to impact financial markets? And in many ways, I was listening to what you just described, and it, it tracked fairly closely with my own experience of evolving from financial markets, talking with scientists about the issue. And I remember a conversation about how, you know, they were saying that, look, this is actually, we're being somewhat conservative in their projections. It's but it's very similar. Very similar. Yeah. I mean, one of the one one of the things we learned early on with our vision prize work is it makes total sense. And we we actually call it vision prize prediction systems because we thought that this expert poll would be have predictive value. And I and I think it did. And if you look at our results, you'll see that uh, many of them were spot on. One of the reasons is that the scientists are responding to questions, which includes their insights on research that has not yet been published. Mm -hmm. So that's one reason. Uh, and they're cautious about saying anything in public on research that hasn't been published. And the other is that they're inherently cautious anyway in how they right. report their results, not to mention the political blowback and other uh, concerns that they faced in speaking at public forums. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know it's such a, a fascinating approach and such a fascinating journey that brought you to this point um, and really exciting to see all those kind of threads come together. And yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more about the the current work on the methane question with Geo Financial. If you, you know, maybe just provide a little bit of a kind of an overview for the audience about what Geo Financial is and, and what you all are up to. Sure. So Geo Financial, as I said, was really an outgrowth of this collaboration uh, with the Institute on the Environment at the University of Minnesota in particular with the executive director of that institute, Dr. Jessica Hellman, who is uh, with me a co-founder of GeoFinancial. So we began the discussions uh, about maybe six years ago, Jessica and I, about where there was the highest points of leverage in terms of getting information out to the financial markets in particular, which was my personal interest, as a point of leverage to affect action. So our, our theory of change was that by providing information that wasn't currently available, we could influence behavior of both the capital markets players and ultimately that would drive behavior change by the companies themselves. So we asked the question, you know, where is there the opportunity for biggest impact in the short term? Dr. Hellman, Jessica is not a, an expert in methane and I'm certainly not either. And neither of us were or had any prior experience with satellites. We just said, you know, where's the biggest opportunity? And we quickly concluded that the short acting gases, in particular methane, was that, was that opportunity. And there's a pretty simple reason for that. Every molecule of methane has more than 80 times the global warming potential of every molecule of CO2 for the first 20 years it's in the atmosphere. And so that represents both a, a challenge and an opportunity, because if we can cap those emissions now, we buy time for the energy transition, which needs to happen. But a lot of that's going to take uh, decades. And there's been so much focus on CO2, uh, rightly so. 
But uh, until recently, I think uh, to some extent at the exclusion of, of methane, which is more important in the short term. So we said, let's look at methane. And the two major sources of human-caused methane are really from oil and gas or energy broadly, oil and gas and coal mining, uh, which is inherently bad, and then from agriculture. And the Institute on the Environment is a deep, has deep expertise in agriculture, and we could have gone that route. But the intersection between ag and the financial markets is not that strong. So we said, let's focus on oil and gas, which is at least as large or approximately as large as agriculture and livestock in its entirety. And within oil and gas, we quickly found that most of the emissions are coming from upstream oil production. There's some through distribution, but largely upstream. So it looked like there was an opportunity there to do something. At the same time, we began to see that the satellites, when we started this work, there was only one prototype satellite in space that was capable of uh, detecting methane to, at any kind of actionable level. There had been one prior government space agency satellite that detected the ma massive methane leak at Aliso Canyon in, in Southern California in 2015, I think it was. And it just happened to be available. It wasn't designed to capture methane, but it was the first example of, a, of satellite detection of a methane plume. So we took that as a starting point and uh, began to see that there were a lot of developments that were going to lead to more satellites that could be more effective in tracking methane uh, for the first time. The main one being uh, the Tropomi satellite on the European Space Agency, Tropomi sensor, I should say, on the European Space Agency satellite called uh, a Sentinel-5P, which was launching about a year after we started our, our company. And that's the the sensor that we use primarily for the detection that we're compiling. So we came at it not as experts, but more from the perspective of where's the biggest opportunity in the short term to have to affect real change. Hmm. So in terms of like some of the information that you've uncovered over the course of the last few years, and maybe talk about it in terms of like implications for investors. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about your theory of change and wanting to change behavior. And, and maybe as you're you know, sort of thinking about it from the perspective of here's some interesting information, you can talk about how you're seeing some of that data compared to what companies are actually reporting. And I right. think you've done some interesting work on in that area as well. Well, I've come to the realization through some work with some other colleagues that if we aren't successful in getting the top 250 global greenhouse gas emitters to change quickly, we're in deep trouble. So, you know, I initially came at this more from a divestment perspective. And that was really the inspiration behind the Macroclimate 50, which is yeah. a screen of coal-fired power plants. And I, and I still believe that, you know, coal is inherently the worst energy source. And there's really no justification for owning companies that are have operations in coal-fired power plants. Having said that, I'm concerned about it becoming privatized and becoming even a larger problem uh, if it's sure. privately. Yeah. On the oil and gas side, there is a need and, again, an opportunity uh, for at least some of these companies to effectively transition from both fossil fuel providers to renewable energy providers, although that may come from other companies rather than the oil majors, but at a minimum to improve their operations in the near term because of this short-acting gas situation. So what we're beginning to see from our data is that there's quite a bit of variance 
between the best actors and the worst actors. Mm. So whereas we, you know, if you'd asked me five years ago, I, I would have said, and in fact, this was part of our strategy and still is to some extent for individual investors is to ex- simply exclude fossil fuel owners. As I know, uh, you know, FFI, you know, has uh, products, investment products that would allow that. And I wouldn't argue against it from that perspective because there's an inherent economic interest for them to to exploit those reserves, which really in a perfect world wouldn't be exploited, right? Having sure. said that, you know, some of those will be exploited, produced, and consumed. There's no question over the next you know, 10, 20, who knows how many years. And so it's imperative in all of us to try to encourage the companies to move toward a production method that is much less damaging and toxic. Yeah. And so what we're finding, which is really quite fascinating, is that the disclosed emissions are not a good predictor of actual emissions. Mm. You know, most of the ESG data that is available today for investors is based on company disclosures. And there is value in company disclosures, but direct observation is really where you ultimately need to be to the extent that's possible. And methane detection in the on gas sector is the one area or one of the best areas where it really is possible. And mm-hmm. we, we're finding that if you went by what the companies were disclosing, you might in some cases pick the companies who are actually the worst emitters rather than the best emitter in terms of their environmental performance. Overall, many scientific studies and our, sci- our satellite observations confirm this. Companies underreport actual emissions by a factor about eight and possibly much more than that. Wow. Yeah. And this is so exciting because, I mean, I think for me, it's one of the reasons why investor engagement on these issues is so critical because investors are going to want to verify and get the real data and double, triple check. And uh, I'm curious, Mark, just a little bit more on how it kind of works and how the process works. And obviously, if there's any proprietary IP or anything, no mm-hmm. need to, to answer. But I'm just, you know, so you've got the satellite data. Or is that kind of just, you know, satellites are going around the world and picking up these methane plumes. And then are you able to zero in and sort of identify which company is responsible for that? Or are there specific sites that you know a company has operations and then you can get that data? Or sort of how does the process work at a high level? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've come at this from a different perspective than I think really anyone else in the field. You know, most of the other both companies and and analytics firms that are working on methane are focused on major plumes, super emitters, large events, which is important work because it's there's kind of an 80-20 rule where you know something like you know 20% of the sites you know generate 80% of the emissions. It's actually more than that uh, with uh, super emitters and methane. Um, so that's important work. However, we our approach was to look at this more from a company level investor perspective. And, and understanding how is a company performing overall relative to their peers and taking to, into account their production. Because we don't want to just say, well, Exxon is the worst because they're emitting the most, the most methane, hypothetically. Mm-hmm. That should be a percentage of production. So we normalize for production, which is called you know, methane intensity, which is basically leak rate per, per production. So that's kind of our metric. And the way we do that is also a little different. There are both scientific satellites and commercial satellites. In the past, we've used both, but now we're, we're focused on purely open source, open data sources, which is the scientific satellites. And we've developed some unique methodology using both algorithms and now increasingly machine learning 
to extract better and better information from relatively coarse resolution satellites. So mm -hmm. our method is combines two things. One is to is signal processing of the open data that comes off of these scientific satellites, which is a non-trivial activity in itself. There's a lot of uh, noise and other factors that you need to you know, take into account when you're processing this information. And then the other side of it is the asset level data. So we compile ownership information worldwide on who owns these wellheads and where they're located. So that is a public data source, but it varies by locale uh, and a varying quality. So in the US, for example, it's compiled at the state level. And uh, the records from Colorado are probably better than the records from Oklahoma. Uh, but in general, it's not bad. And that information is also available in Canada at the provincial level. So essentially, our data comes, our source of truth for the asset information is public filings, some of which have maybe not always current up to date, but they're the best record we have. And it needs to be in machine-readable form. So that allows us to provide uh, coverage or identify the, the ownership of these sites uh, in the US, Canada, Europe, Australia, and Brazil. So essentially what we do is we match the emissions that we see to the ownership of the site. And the net result then is a bottoms up score for all the sites we observe for companies aggregated across all, uh, all of their locations and end up with an individual score of, in the case that it's either a letter score or a numeric score, which scales their net contribution of methane above and beyond what's in, already in the atmosphere. So, so do you expect that fossil fuel companies will begin to utilize more of this technology for their own reporting and perhaps mediation activities in the future? And, and have you started to engage with any of the high emitting companies utilizing your research? Uh, great question. So we are exploring work with the oil and gas companies as a source of information. I mean, we're we're happy to work with anyone who's interested in getting you know objective information about what's happening. And uh, we are, in fact, will be applying for EPA certification as a certified method for detecting methane emissions. That, as you may know, there is a very significant positive development that's come out of the Inflation Reduction Act which for the first time is putting a, a fee, they call it, which is a fine on excessive emissions beginning in January of 2024. And for the first time ever, uh, the EPA is requiring what they call empirical evidence of emissions. Up until now, they have used an in, what they call an inventory method, which the EPA designed in 1995. And the way that works is that you simply each valve or component that you have in your in your infrastructure has a known leak rate, like an underwriter's lab leak rate. And you just take the number of valves or components and you multiply it by the leak rate and that's your emissions. And that's why there's this dramatic underreporting because that doesn't just correspond to reality. It's not sure. being dishonest, that's just the method they use. So for the first time beginning in January in the coming year, companies are required to provide objective information. Uh, direct observations. And we expect to have a significant hand to play in that as well. And ultimately, what we would like to be is we're, we're reporting on both 
what the company disclosed emissions are and what we observe. And we have a metric, which is what we call the reporting gap, the difference between those two. In a perfect world, the difference between those two is zero. And if we're doing both the monitoring and the observation for a company, the reporting gap should be close to zero. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, George, this is this is interesting, I think, from the perspective of you know, a lot of times with what sometimes is you have to either divest or you engage with companies, mm -hmm. right? And we're finding, and I'm sure you're finding too, that it's not necessarily an either or decision. And I think a lot of what Mark talked about with the information and he sort of touched on, you know, divestment versus engagement. That's another, I, I think this whole area is another or presents another element to think about when making decisions on that because you could certainly see how with certain of these companies anyway you know being an engaged shareholder and staying invested in these companies could could really effectuate change yeah, yeah. we think about it as informed engagement that uh, mm -hmm. and some of the comp and some of the asset managers that we're working with are approaching it that way is taking this information and then going to the company and say this is what we're seeing mm -hmm. and comparing to what you've disclosed what's up here you know, we'd like some answers and maybe you have some uh, you know, ways you can address this. So it's coming at them you know, with this you know, leverage of information that they right. may not even have themselves. Yeah. No, it's Mark. We've got a whole kind of initiative around the concept of net zero portfolios and more and more endowments are making these net zero commitments that are then you know kind of passed through to the managers and to have these types of conversations. Um, and I'm just curious sort of what you're seeing in terms of, or maybe it's it's still early days, but um, do you feel like the companies with this more informed approach to engagement will be more inclined to make these reductions? I mean, obviously they have an incentive just not to be wasteful on some level, right? So there's that sort of driver, but do you think the investor voice is really going to drive a higher focus on reducing these emissions? I'd say there's no question about that. We're mm -hmm. seeing both the active commitment, including using our data to have these conversations, at the same time, we've had extensive discussions with some of these oil companies, and they're very aware of the capital markets' interest in this question. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. combined with the IRA and the change in the, the methane fee structure is making this a point of real, I think, both concern and action mm -hmm. um, among really most of the companies that we're seeing. Now, we'll, you know, the truth will be in the pudding of what the results have been, end up being. But we're having a very different discussion <clears throat> today than we did even you know six or twelve months ago. Mm -hmm. And how? Or I mean, does it really vary in terms of what the fixes are for this too? I mean, can you speak a little bit to what these companies can or should be doing to reduce these leakages? So the first issue is just better information. You know, knowing mm -hmm. where the leaks are. That's where we. That's our play. Mm -hmm. uh, and doing that in a cost-effective manner. There are some very effective techniques already that are using ground sensors or helicopters or uh, mm -hmm. even aircraft to get very precise information, but they're not cost effective and they aren't, they're not really well suited to continuous monitoring. Because mm -hmm. you think of it, you know, to bring in a, you know, a helicopter and aircraft, it's not something you can do every week. It's quite expensive. And the right. satellites are inherently very cost effective because they're monitoring, you know, they're out there all the time capturing images. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's part of it. And then, you know, the you know, the one of the main experts on this is the International Energy Agency. And and they 
they estimate that you know most of these leaks could be uh, eliminated at like 70% of them at you know little or zero costs right so yep. you know it's a very you know doable problem to to solve that's one of the reasons we're excited about it the companies need to be incentivized either through regulations or through you know actions by capital markets players and mm -hmm. and up until then up until now that's been kind of lacking uh, but I do see, you know, quite a bit of momentum in that direction. So we're hopeful that beginning in particular uh, next year, we're going to see some real movement, at least in North America and especially in the U.S., which is one of the major sources. I mean, there's still big problem areas like Turkmenistan and and uh, who knows what's happening in Russia. I mean, there's a lot of emissions there. We can't do anything about that. Mm -hmm. uh, but we can focus on the things that are fixable. And yeah. can be leveraged through the capital markets. Mm -hmm. You know, George, I think it might be interesting, right, for the different initiatives like Climate Action 100 to be able to have more specificity in terms of the areas that you may want to engage with certain companies on. This could be, you know, this could be really interesting for that. I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, Mark. One other kind of technical question on that is: it you mentioned the wellheads is. What's sort of the um, breakdown between like pipelines and wellheads in terms of these leakages? Is it pretty split or is one area bigger? Well, most of it's coming upstream from upstream emissions. Pipelines yeah. are also a source, you know, particularly in Russia, where they're long and leaky and poorly constructed and in Siberia, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and uh, over very extensive distances. So pipelines are a big issue in Russia. Hmm. But less so in the U.S. I'm not saying there are no leaks from pipelines. There certainly are. But uh, if you look at the data, it's primarily coming from upstream. And upstream, fortunately, is easier to address from an asset level side because we have you know good data on the ownership of wells. But mm -hmm. pipeline data is harder to come by, and and, uh, and you have multiple owners, and it's a little harder to track. So it's it's for both reasons we focused on upstream. You know, eventually we'd like to add uh, distribution and downstream as well, mm -hmm. but uh, that's the that's where the biggest problem area is. Gotcha. You know, Mark, maybe we could switch a little bit. Use sort of the remaining time to uh, talk about maybe the next frontier, so to speak, of mm -hmm. of satellite imagery. And you touched a little bit on the agricultural sector, and you know, I, I sort of think about the technology with with satellite data and how it could be used almost in a verification sort of way as well. The, in terms of agriculture, even though agriculture is a big contributor of emissions, it's less interesting to us for two reasons. One is the capital markets play is hard to, to see. And the other is we're most interested in surprises. So I'd take an example, like one of the reasons we're not focused on livestock like cattle, is that you know cattle we know is a is a significant source of methane uh, each cow burps the equivalent roughly of a car emissions per year and so you could calculate without doing a lot of fancy observation roughly what the emissions would be from a herd of cattle uh, in any area uh, they're not going you're not going to find super emitters of cattle right <laughs> Uh, and, and it's known, you know, what could be done to improve this. You could change their diet and dramatically reduce emissions. And mm -hmm. there are some dairy farmers like Strauss Dairy Farm here in our area, in Northern California, that's doing amazing things in, in cutting methane emissions from for, for dairy cattle. So that's like, in some way, a, a known problem with a known solution. And the mm -hmm. direct measurement doesn't add a lot of value. 
Mark, what about landfills? I mean, that's another area you hear about yeah. as a methane source. Is that is the scale just that much different or yeah, so there, there, there are two issues about landfills. First of all, it's it's a very di- landfills are a very distant second in terms of emissions, uh, methane emissions, landfills and, and even coal mines. I mean, coal is really terrible for other reasons in addition to the methane. But um, landfills contribute about eight percent of total um, methane emissions in the U.S. So it's not nothing, but it's not the largest uh, producer of of emissions. And again. There are no surprises probably there, big surprises. Mm-hmm. So there's not a big benefit of monitoring from our perspective. Mm-hmm. Instead, though, we do we are concerned about landfills and also leakage from coal mines and to, to the extent that it might contaminate our findings of, of oil wells. We want to make sure that particularly in the Appalachian region and other areas where there's both coal mining like Appalachia, and we can take maps and make sure we're when we're looking at a well that there isn't a nearby landfill that might be the source, we want to we want to exclude those sources so that we're not falsely attributing hmm. the leakage to to the oil well. Yeah, interesting. What about other applications? I know maybe outside of methane, and I, maybe this aren't things you're looking at, but I just remember I think World Resources Institute had a project looking at deforestation using satellite imagery to yeah. kind of confirm. Are there other applications like that that you all are? We're not looking at it, but there are others who are, and I think that has high value. Um, And methane happens to be the hardest thing to do uh, Mm -hmm. because it's an invisible gas and Mm -hmm. it's difficult to track. Uh, Deforestation can be done with visual spectrum satellites, essentially cameras. Mm -hmm. Um, And so really, I don't want to mean anybody, but virtually anybody (laughs) can take, you know, data off of Google Earth and come up with some, you know, pretty good insights. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at that, and there's some people who are doing, you know, more sophisticated work, which has high value. So I don't think there's a shortage of people who are working in those areas, but we haven't pursued it a because it's a little easier, and we'd prefer to work on the harder stuff, and also mm-hmm. because it doesn't affect climate stability quite as directly. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, afforestation or, or deforestation, you could argue, is a major contributor. I wouldn't want to, you know, understate the importance of that. But it's a little it's a little different than the the impact of the short acting gases. Mm-hmm. Well, Mark, you're doing a lot of great work here. I think you know combining science, technology, entrepreneurship, capital markets. I think these are all things when you sort of think about packaging all these different elements together. These are all activities that um, are necessary to to mitigate climate change. Is there any? Uh, any thoughts, and don't want to put you on the spot with this huge big picture question, but are we going to get our act together as a society? How do you feel about where we are, where we're going, and, you know, sort of given where you sit in terms of really understanding, you know, science, technology, and capital markets? So I'm, you know, I guess like the climate scientist now, I'm deeply concerned. And there's, you know, no rational person wouldn't be deeply concerned. But I'm cautiously optimistic that we're going to see real progress on some of these issues. And I think it's a lot of it comes down to focus. You know, if if we're not focused on the biggest impact problems today, we're going to be in a deeper problem even in five or 10 years, not to mention 20 years. We've got this narrow window now to try to cap these emissions to buy us some time. And, and I think there's a potential to really do that with methane. Uh, which is why we're so excited about this. I'm I'm kind of a one-song band here, but uh, <laughs> no, don't know if that's the expression. But you know what I'm trying to say is that uh, that you know we think it's the single most important thing to be working on. 
and that the capital markets have a significant role to play and that engagement can be a really important uh, lever and that uh, endowments uh, have a big potential hand to play as well, given their perspective in terms of long-term investing and uh, societal impact. So I'm, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that we're going to make real progress on this particularly important question over the next five, 10 years. Nice. Beyond that, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, and thanks so much for this work you're doing, Mark. And, uh, you know, I did notice people should check out on your website. You've got some great overview data right there of some of the companies and their reporting and the like. And so uh, definitely encourage people to check out the work you're doing and really appreciate your time and coming to join us here today. Well, my pleasure. So it's geofinancial.com if, if anyone's interested. And uh, we certainly appreciate the good work both of you guys are doing as well. All right. Well, great, Mark. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Take care. My pleasure.